Welcome to the Amazon Legends Podcast, where we have real stories about making it big on Amazon. Our guests are CEOs of large companies and entrepreneurs who became powerful sellers, also experts specializing in helping sellers, and both former and current Amazon employees who will give us an insight from behind the scenes. Here's your host, Nick Urison. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Amazon Legends. My next guest today is an expert on mergers and acquisitions of Amazon businesses. And he's currently the Associate Director of M&A at Elevate Brands. He's originally from South Africa, uh, lived on four continents, and finally settled in Austin, Texas, made America his home, and he's an adrenaline junkie, skydiving, kiteboarding, and, and others. So, uh, so meet my guest. Without further ado, uh, Matt Bota. Welcome to the show, Matt. Hey, Nick. Thanks for having me. Well, it's, uh, I'm really curious about so many things that you're doing. So uh, these days, we all know costs are going up. You know, we're recording this in June of 2022. We don't know what's coming our way. So right now the gas prices are up, which means everything else goes up in, in cost. So that compresses the margins, which becomes a big problem for Amazon sellers because they really need to make money on every sale. So um, you found a way to grow your Amazon brands despite all these conditions. So, so tell me, what is the secret for your success? We get physical. Oh, so uh, so you go around beating up people, and if they don't give you business, you, you put them in their place? Yeah, basically, we, we love to get our hands dirty, find out where our customers live, and we just, you know, we love our customers. So, you know, we try to meet them in person. We talk to them over email. We talk to them via phone. We meet them at trade shows, and we just love our customers. I mean, they drive our business. They drive our growth. So we show that appreciation to them and we try to learn as much as we can from them. You know, we talk to them in person. You know, we love brands that have raving fans and we just get their feedback. You know, we ask them what they think about the products, what they think about the brand and what else they want. And we just leverage all of that data to keep improving. You know, if they want products, we try to see if we can source it and see if there's enough demand. If they don't really like something with a product, we see how we can update our design or improve it. So, you know, just to make sure that they're always happy. So uh, there is a lot in, in everything you said. So we need to unpack that. So first of all, who are your customers? You're talking about Amazon buyers, the individual consumer that goes buys, but that's not, they don't go to trade shows, right? So it's a combination of the Amazon consumers and our Shopify direct customers. And then you have the trade shows. So sometimes it's, you know, we're talking to, you know, wholesale buyers and other suppliers in the market. Sometimes we go to physical events. So we'll set up a gazebo, we'll put wrapped cars, we'll, you know, display the brand, sell the products. And, you know, these are like maybe like a monster truck event where our customers who do buy our brands do go. I see. So, so you are a brand, you're selling on Amazon, but you don't just leave it at selling on Amazon. You actually go to trade shows to exhibit your products. And are you going to those trade shows? Is your primary motive 
taking wholesale orders or is just to collect feedback? So it's mainly to, it's to build a brand presence. I mean, if we do get wholesale orders, that's great, but it's, it's more just to talk to the customers. So it's not just trade shows, it's physical events. So we're going to events where our customers are. So I guess, so one of the things I, I just remember, um, I don't remember his name. I don't even know the product because I don't need to use it, thankfully. Uh, it's uh, people, bold people, you know, they shave their heads. So this guy built this razor for shaving heads because apparently it has its own challenges. Uh, you can't just use a regular uh, blade. And to promote it, they actually sponsored, uh, I believe, NASCAR. Or they started small, of course, but then they went on to sponsoring NASCAR event, uh, motorcycles, you know, uh, Harley groups and things like that. So, so that's what you're talking about as a brand, maybe not necessarily sponsored, but be there, be in front of people as a brand, not just leave it online. Is, is that what I'm understanding? We find this a point. I mean, there's some brands that do better having a physical presence than others. And once you grow and get to scale, I mean, there's a hundred levers that you can pull to grow a business. But we definitely found, I mean, taking a business from $10 million to 20 million or, you know, 20 million to a hundred, it is helpful having that physical presence. And, you know, as you get in front of more people, if you've got a good product, you're going to convert more. I mean, you need to grow your audience. There's a lot of ways you can grow your audience directly on Amazon you know, get in more search volume targets in the right keywords. But if you pull in those levers as much as you can, you want to start driving traffic off of Amazon onto Amazon or driving traffic off of Amazon directly to your own site. So now that's it. That's a bit of a dangerous area, right? Because Amazon does not want to lose. So you also mentioned earlier that uh, you communicate by email. So Amazon does not want you to email customers directly. So tell us about some of the best practices you have doing that. Yeah, so, so we don't we don't want to do anything out of line with Amazon's terms of services. So we don't ask for reviews. We don't ask for five-star reviews, but we do try and engage with our customers when they engage with us. So some of them, you know, if they do email us via our website, you know, if we do collect their email in a legal manner, then we do try leverage that. I mean, We'll reach out to them with either surveys. We don't want to blow up the inbox. You know, we want to build a relationship with them and, you know, show that we do appreciate them. Yes. So if we do have a survey, we'll maybe try to offer, you know, coupons, offer them discounts. So what I'm hearing from you really is for anybody listening, being on Amazon, it pays to have your web presence, your website, mainly for the purposes of, building your own mailing list, right? So then you can leverage that following to drive to your listings on Amazon. If you're launching a new product, for example, it's great because that gives you external traffic. Amazon rewards you for external traffic, plus you are almost guaranteed to convert compared to just advertising on Amazon with sponsored ads. So uh, you want to do that. So I understand. So, so when you say we get physical, you are basically going out there and showing your face to your customers at events, shows, whatever that may be, where they would be. And then 
And then, of course, that you can collect their mailing, email address or whatever and build your following and then stay in touch. So that's what you mean by getting physical. Exactly. And it's helpful. I mean, once, you know, if you build a relationship with your customer, your sale doesn't end at the one product. You know, as you launch more products, you increase that average order value per customer. And the emailing list is a great way to do that. I mean, if, if you launch a new product, it's quite hard to get ranked on Amazon originally. You know, to start, you've got to spend a lot of money on PPC. What we try to do is, as we launch a new product, we email our mailing list and we'll say, look, you know, these are the new products. We know our emailing list is, you know, our target customer. So we know they are interested in the products. So we get a high click-through rate. We then get a high conversion rate and drive in all of that inorganic, all that traffic on Amazon that you drove off of Amazon, you know, helps improve your conversion rates in the beginning and gets your initial sales. So it really helps boost your bestseller rank, especially which is super helpful during the honeymoon period. Yeah. So uh, as far as mailing this, so let's talk about a little bit on the mailing list. What is a good size of a number of subscribers for a mailing? Because a lot of people I hear, oh, you know, you need to have millions of people because the rates, the conversion rates or open rates, click-through rates are very low. So what is a, what do you say to that? What is your recommendation? So I think it's hard to quantify in terms of number because it's a lot of different factors. I think it really comes down to, like you mentioned, the conversion rates. What we think is a lot more important is having a highly engaged mailing list rather than just having a lot of emails. So some people collect emails for the past decade and you know some of the people that emailed a thousand times and they've never opened an email. Where other people take the approach where they constantly clean up their, their list. You know, if they see they're not getting engagement, if they see people aren't over opening their mails, they take them off. So they prefer to keep a smaller mailing list, but keep a highly engaged mailing list. So you know when you do email out, majority of the people will be opening and the people that you are emailing they actually value the content that you are sending. So, so definitely, you're saying less is more. That's what you're saying. Yeah, less is more if they are engaged. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, so there should be no discouragement uh, because you don't have too many people. Just focus on what you can deliver, right? And how often you can deliver in terms of value and just stay consistent and that engagement will increase the value of your mailing list. Exactly. And data is key. So to the extent you track and try track every metric, track how many people are opening the email, track how many people are, you know, following the link, track how many people are converting. So the more data you've got, I mean, just keep making informed decisions and see if something works, double down on it. If it doesn't try reassess your approach. So you said something that falls directly in my interest area. The first word is data. The second word is conversion. The third is base seller rank. So um, give us your take. So you're launching something. Um, what is it that you're watching and why? So when we launch in a product, I mean, Amazon, the A9 algorithm, you know, it looks at, you know, what's the search volume? For the keyword, what's the of the people that are searching, how many are seeing your listing, how many are clicking on your listing, and how many are converting? So there's a couple of different factors. You first, you want to be targeting the right keywords. So you first want to see what keywords are people looking for. 
because Amazon's different to a brick and mortar store. If you walk into a physical store, you see the product on the shelf. You might not realize what you need, but you see it there in front of you. It's like, okay, now I need that. Whereas on Amazon, it takes the opposite approach where the shelf space is infinite. I mean, more products than can ever fit into a store can fit on Amazon. I mean, that's why it's called the everything store. So the key is how do you show your product in front of the right person? And the way that's done is search volume, search words. So someone knows what product they're going to Amazon. They don't typically log on to Amazon and just see the product appear in front of them. You know, they can do that with the daily deals, but that's a bit different. So people typically know what they want when they're on Amazon. So they're going to be searching for terms. So you need to understand what terms and what keywords your customers are looking for when they find the product. So you first want to see what's the search volume for the keywords and make sure that the search word you're trying to target is applicable for your customer. If someone searches for that keyword, do they want to buy your product? If yes, then you want to make sure your product is ranking for that keyword. So, you know, the three ways to do that is in, in the head end, you want to put, you know, those keywords in your title. You either want to put in one of the three, you don't want to put in all three. So either the head end in the bullets or the back end keywords. So once you get that optimized, you know, your product's going to appear on the, the page, then you want to focus on ranking for it. So then you want to see how can we rank for this keyword to make sure that Amazon thinks that our product is more applicable for that specific keyword. So, so that's how do, you, how do you increase your ranking? So that's where, I mean, there's a hundred levers you can pull. I mean, <laughs> one is either trying to, you know, you want to get higher conversion and, you know, of more click through. So what we find really does well is driving traffic off of Amazon onto Amazon we've had great success. I mean, we've used an influencer for one product. I mean, we typically ranked, you know, the 15, we have a fifth, you know, we normally ranked about 15 in the BSR on average. We paid one post and we pay the influence almost $25,000 for a post. We generate about $250,000 revenue. And what we found with that, we basically broke even, but we went from the 15 ranked product in the wine glass category, which is super competitive niche to the number one ranked BSR for three days. And then it slowly tapped it back to about 10, 15 over the next 10 days. So what we found driving that traffic off of Amazon onto Amazon significantly improved our BSR. And then the organic sales that followed, that's where you make a lot more margin. Yeah, that's the idea, right? So you want to do this so that way. Somebody actually put a question to me uh, only yesterday He said, you know, when you have your website and then you start advertising on Google, you get start to get orders. So you've got a customer acquisition cost that's ridiculously high. We know that anyway. But let's assume that that's not an issue for you. So the challenge is, he said, as soon as you stop the Google advertising, sales dry up. But that's not the case on Amazon, right? Because every paid... Uh, click brings X number of organic clicks. And as those clicks come in, you get more reviews and more reviews. Of course, if you've done the job right, you optimize your listings and you're converting at, at healthy numbers, you're going to keep ranking up. And that paid campaign that you run will actually have residual value for you to get uh, customers at zero cost. 
through organic ranking, right? That with that is that your experience also? Exactly. So I don't know if I agree with him that you only get the one sale on Google. I mean, if you drive that sale from Google onto Amazon, you know, in a simplistic example, if you drive the one sale, you might improve your rank on Amazon enough that you get two more sales after then. And that's where we try to focus on it. You know, if you do it at scale in the beginning, it helps just, you know, Amazon's about a flywheel. You need momentum. So the more momentum you get in the beginning, the more sustainable it becomes. So driving that sale, if you do drive it from Google directly to Amazon, you can just help improve that flywheel impact. So the Google advertising that he was referring to is advertise on Google, drive traffic to your website. Mm. He didn't consider Amazon. So this was someone who was not selling on Amazon and he was selling on his website. So in the discussion, he said, well, you know, uh, on how, how is Amazon different? So this is the problem I'm having. I said, well, on Amazon different. Now you are actually taking it to a whole different level by advertising on Google, your Amazon listings. So yeah. that, yes, and my also recently I, I had a guest and he confirmed it. He said uh, that they are finding that driving external traffic to your Amazon listing, it gets organic ranking like on a ratio of one to five. For every one paid external click, will give you five organic clicks. I don't know if that formula applies for everyone, how accurate, but one thing without a doubt is external driving external traffic is rewarded by organic rank increases. And also Amazon gives you apparently this uh, reimbursement, right? So, yeah, so I can't, tell us I about can't that reimbursement aspect. How does that work? Yeah, I can't speak to the numbers, but I mean, there definitely is a benefit. And then in terms of the reimbursements is there's a special link that, you know, Amazon allows you to create and it's an affiliate link. So when we work with an influencer, they get their own link through Amazon for our product. So they'll drive, if you go click on their list, if you go click on the follow their link and drive to the drive to Amazon, even if they buy my product or another product, they get commission. So they get commission if I go click, let's say you get the link. I follow your link onto Amazon. I think you get a twin, you get commission on everything I purchase from Amazon within 24 hours of opening the link. So it's not just, so that's where the influencers want to just keep driving traffic to Amazon and the commission, it, it varies per product. So it's different categories have different commission. I think, you know, I think cosmetics have, you know, higher commission electronics have lower commission so yeah. it's a variant scale for each product yeah but also amazon will give you reimbursement on their fees if you are driving external traffic to your listings oh they give me as a seller reimbursement yes yes but that that's i'm not aware of that i mean that's definitely interesting I mean, if that's the case, there's, there's huge Absolutely. benefits for it. It's called attribution. So they want to not only reward. So basically what Amazon says is, listen, I want you to provide the best customer experience for Amazon customers. Hmm. And, and at the same time, I want to grow as Amazon. So 
just don't go paying me for advertising already using the people who are already on Amazon for, to bring them to your listing. Bring me new people. And so in return, I'm going to do a couple of things. First of all, I'm going to tell you where this external traffic is coming from. That's called attribution. And if you use that feature, I am going to actually pay you back some of the commission you pay me on every sale. Hmm. So this is a new program, new being like maybe three months or so. Uh, and I would definitely uh, encourage everybody. The only question that I don't have an answer for is, as you know, the way you rank on Amazon for a specific keyword is if somebody searches using that keyword, they land on your listing and they buy and enough people buy, you get the Amazon choice badge, blah, blah, blah. You rank up anyway. So now when, they, when you bring somebody from Google direct to your listing, they're not searching. So how do they know what keyword to rank you for? That I don't know. Yeah, yeah that's what we aren't sure. But I mean, we definitely do see a benefit. I mean, we see Absolutely. the BSR yeah. does go up. So Amazon do look at the conversion rate. So I don't know if they weight their conversion rate. But, you know, if you drive in traffic off Amazon onto Amazon, you've got a much higher conversion rate. So that yeah. does definitely impact the, the equation. So tell me about conversion rate. How do you, where do you find it? How do you track it? What do you do when you see it going up and down? And what are those? Share with us some numbers that, that if you like, would be benchmarks and then how you use those. Yeah, so we can look at the conversion rate if, if it's your own product in the Seller Central account. So under the business reports, you can pull, you know, the business reports show the conversion rate per product per period that you look at. So it's a bit of a, you know, Amazon recently released this in the API. So if you do pull the API data, you can get your conversion rates on a daily basis. If you don't have access to the API, it is a bit of a manual process to pull the reports, but it comes on a standard template every time. So if you are good with Excel, and, you know, if you can build a couple, you know, formulas, you can run scripts to, you know, track your conversion rate and see how it changes over time. The one problem is the data has been distorted. You know, previously Amazon didn't show the web, the mobile sessions in the conversion rates. So previously they'd only show web sessions, but they would show both mobile sales and they'd show web sales. So if you looked at your conversion rate in the beginning of the year and last year, it would be significantly higher. I think it was around March or April this year that Amazon realized this caveat with their data and they've now started releasing the mobile sessions and the web sessions, but they haven't done it for all the periods. So they released it for about 12 months earlier. So if you go look now, you can see your mobile sessions up until April, 2021 and onwards, but you don't see it before then. So if you do look at your conversion rates over the last 24 months, you'll probably see it has almost halved. So it is hard to track. I mean, there is no one answer benchmark for every product. I mean, some products have higher conversion rate than others, especially if you are doing a lot of driving traffic onto Amazon, you typically are going to convert higher. The one benefit is people do search. If people are on Amazon, you know, the person wants to buy a product. So the conversion rates on Amazon are significantly higher than the conversion rate you would see on a D2C site. I mean, sometimes we see D2C sites with, 
you know, as low as like 0.1, 0.2% up into 2 or 3%. I mean, on Amazon, you sometimes see conversion rates around, you know, 5% at the lower end up until, you know, 20, 30%. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Let's say that you are doing this because a lot of people are not really equipped to use API. Do you use the API or how do you get it? So we leverage the API and we leverage manual scrapes. So the API data only became recently available. So we busy building our dashboards to mimic what we were doing manually. I mean, previously we'd, we'd pull the data manually on, you know, a weekly basis. So we just pull it from, you know, Monday to Sunday and then, we'll just have like an Excel macro that will basically consolidate the data into a flat file that we can work with. And then you feed the flat file into, you know, an Excel graph. Yeah. So uh, the other thing is getting the data, doesn't matter how often you're getting it, you have to do it regularly and also for the same exact same period because getting it this week, Monday to Sunday, next week, 10-day because you missed the, the, the date, it, it just doesn't work. You need to have consistent. And also you need to have perspective. So you need the historical data, right? So that data, they only give you 24 months of data, and that's exactly 24 months. If you start getting it they, today, let's say it happens to be the 15th, then they're going to go back exactly 24 months to the 15th. So, uh, so it's constantly moving. So, um, so you need to start accumulating the data and it really goes beyond what Excel can handle, especially if you have many SKUs. So uh, how do you handle that part of it? Yeah, exactly. So we use a tool like Alt, called Altrix that allows you to handle, you know, Excel is limited to a million rows. I mean, Altrix, you can feed in an infinite number of mm-hmm. rows of data. So we populate the data outside and then we'll either put a feeder file, we'll make a file that's smaller to work with, and then we'll put the output into Excel, or we feed the output directly into BigQuery, and then we'll run dashboards yeah. from that or Power BI. So what else do you uh, monitor as data point? So conversion rate is one. Uh, what else do you monitor if you monitor anything else? Yeah, so, so the sell-through rates. I mean, you know, exactly like you say, you've got to look at dates on a consistent basis. So trying to look from a week to week basis and, you know, this time to last year. So we want to know straight away, are we, are our sales dropping? If so, we want to know what happened. I mean, sometimes what happens is Amazon will change the the keyword. So if you start typing in Amazon, Amazon will automatically populate the rest of the string. So Amazon's auto populate might have been driving traffic to one of your keywords then Amazon might change what that auto-populating is driving to. And suddenly you find a keyword that had, you know, 100,000 search volume a month has dropped to 10,000. If all of our revenue is coming from the original term, we need to know what has Amazon changed that auto-populate to so we can try to target that keyword. So we're constantly monitoring all of our top selling products and trying to see how are the sales doing compared to this time last year? How are they doing compared to last week? And sometimes it's just a small difference, but you know, if you don't identify the change quick enough, that small difference compounds pretty rapidly. Yeah. So we constantly see in the search volume where it is, is conversion rate still where it is? And then if not, we just try to understand what's happening, what's driving that, and 
is it something that we can fix? Yeah. Yeah. So what I'm hearing from you, Matt, is this is all about data. You really need to be on top of your listing performance, not your overall sales, not your overall profitability. They are, of course, they are important. But when you get down to the nitty gritty, it comes down to looking at every single SKU, how it's performing. This is a moving target. You need to be getting the data and regularly looking at it. So that's the, the lesson, really. And it, it overwhelms people because they usually don't like this kind of stuff. They like to go out there and find new products, and right? So uh, that's how it is. Okay, so this is great. So let's now uh, step back a little bit and, and look at the big picture. So as you know, there are two models, FBA, FBM. So since you are in the business of scaling brands, uh, what is your favorite model? We prefer FBA. I mean, we find we've spoken to a lot of sellers. I mean, we screened over a thousand businesses over the last 18 months. I mean, I've personally been on the phone with over 300 sellers. So we see people that run FBM business. We see people that run FBA. More people typically prefer to prefer FBA. The sellers that do use FBM, they often think their margins are higher than they actually are. I mean, when we look at the financials and look at the cost, you know, it's not that much cheaper, in our opinion, to run a warehouse unless you are doing it at significant scale. I mean, we do see sellers at, you know, over $100 million revenue. They run their own warehouse, but even then, they'll still put a lot of products into Amazon because having the two-day, having Amazon Prime on your listing makes a massive impact. That's one thing we have seen for sure. So if you are running FBM, you at least want to run Prime Fulfilled FBM you know, because if you don't have that prime badge, you know, just by sending product into Amazon, you're probably going to get higher conversion as people see they can get the product within a day or two instead of, you know, the time that is listed. Well, I mean, if you're running an FBM operation, you, you, you have an overhead, right? So that doesn't get factored into the individual uh, order cost, but that, that's a fact. So if you ever take that and break it down and then translate it to, per order cost, your costs will go way through the roof. It's uh, much higher. However, there is a good case for FBM, primarily because Amazon takes so much time in receiving. So uh, if suddenly you run out of inventory, what do you do? So it's much better to get your FBM item activated so that you can mm. ship until they receive. So. That is the only case that justifies to me that, you know, it's, it's a good idea to have FPM as a backup. What do you think? Exactly. We've seen that that's happened to us as well. I mean, we had one stock that we just ran out of inventory. I mean, when we did send it more stock into Amazon, it took them about three or four weeks to, you know, fully receive it and then disperse it. So there's almost, you know, a couple of weeks where we couldn't sell the product at all. And then a couple more weeks where the product wasn't, you know, available on Prime throughout the US. So if we could do FBM for that product on that day, it would help keep our listings live a lot longer and then just transition to Prime delivery or to FBA as Amazon receipts it. So, mm -hmm. so uh, since you, you acquire brands, right? At Elevate Brands, you acquire brands and then... You operate them yourself to scale even further, right? That's that's basically your business model. So 
what is a what is the criteria for such an acquisition? So we did 26 acquisitions last year, and what we found is the businesses that tend to, to grow better were the ones that already had teams in place. So what we try to do, we don't really see ourselves as an aggregator. We see ourselves more as a brand builder. So we try to find sellers that are growing and building strong businesses, and they're struggling to take it to the next level. You know, it takes one person to build a million-dollar business, and it takes a different skill set to build a $10 million or $100 million business. So we find some sellers are able to do the full transition on their own. Some of them start to run into a couple of head blocks, roadblocks on the way. And some of them, it's just they need a partner to help them continue to maintain high growth. So we look for sellers who have built good brands. They've got good brand recognition. They've got good products. They've got a good name, but they're just struggling to get it to that next level. Either, you know, they want to cash out. They want to take some chips off the table. You know, they're tired of, I mean, some people that built big businesses on paper, but they've never taken any cash out because everything they make, they keep reinvesting into inventory. And that becomes quite scary as an entrepreneur. I mean, if you take in our finance in a debt around the inventory, you know, if anything happens to your Amazon list and you can't sell, you've still got to make those repayments and, you know, it becomes quite risky. So some people don't want to do that in their individual capacity. And that's when we find we become a good partner. I mean, we take over all the financing and the debt and we find we can pull a lot of high level levers around their business. This one business that we bought last year in November, I mean, we started the discussions with the seller around September. Just before then, I mean, he was growing his business, you know, almost 100% year over year. And then it started hitting a few tailwinds and the business started going a bit flat. His revenue dropped about 20% in the month that we, you know, were almost set to sign and close the deal. And when we looked in the back end of his listing, what he did well is he really did PPC well. You know, about 60% of his sales were, you know, through PPC and only 40% were organic. So he built out, you know, super sophisticated seller. He built out his own tools to help monitor, monitor his PPC and optimize it. And that's what he focused on. He focused his time on PPC because that's what he got results. But then because he was doing well with PPC, he didn't have time to think about the organic sales. So when we looked at his listing, we saw he did his backend keywords about four years ago and Amazon changed what they look at. I mean, previously you could use 400 characters. Now they only look at 200. So half of his backend keywords weren't tagged. You know, his listings, they were just quite outdated. I mean, when he launched the products about four or five years ago, you know, most people would try and show more of the products. They'd have the image slanted. Whereas if you just rotate the image, you know, you put more of the product available. So it looks more appealing and looks more descriptive on the home page. So, you know, we sort of pointed a couple of these changes out to him. He made the, the adjustments to his listing. And what we know is PPC typically converts lower than organic traffic. So Amazon assessed your organic rank based on your conversion rate. So if you get a PPC, you might be getting more sales, but you convert to a lower rate. So then your organic rank gets hurt. So he optimized the listings. He cut back on PPC. At first, his sales dropped slightly, but then what happened was, it was the conversion rate was better. So then in the second week, he was now converting better. Amazon improved his organic rank, so it's getting more organic traffic. So then his revenue started growing and at a higher conversion rate and at a lower cost, so his margins started improving. So what we found here is we sort of freed up the seller's time. We gave him the opportunity to focus on the bigger picture 
we took over the financing, we took over the inventory forecasting, we took over the inventory payments. And now the seller's just been focusing on optimizing the listing, launching more products, and the business is now continuing to grow 100% year over year. So that's what we typically try to look for. And I assume you also take care of the analytics, right? Everything you mentioned, is that right? Yep. We, I mean, this seller, he had very good analytic tools. So we tried to leverage what he's done into our standardized dashboards. We also pull in data from a lot of third-party sources. So we also sharing that with him. And, you know, we constantly improving from there. So the idea is we do have good analytics and we want to make that data accessible to the sellers. So uh, you are talking about a model where the seller, even though you acquire it, seller still is in the picture. Is that, is that the case? Yeah, because that's what happens. I mean, we, we incentivize the seller. We pay large amounts of cash up front, but we also incentivize the seller with a strong earnout. So the earnout payments can be more than the upfront payment that they received. I see. I see. So this is about he's on board because he's collecting his acquisition, if you like, uh, compensation. Yes, exactly. So he's incentivized to keep growing the brand. We try to pull a lot of levers that he couldn't pull. You know, we've helped him launch the products on Walmart. You know, he just started launching on Amazon Europe. It becomes a lot complicated working in multi-marketplaces. So we help him take over the PPC in Europe. We help him doing the listing transactions in Europe. And, you know, we've now pushed his products into Canada. We're trying to see if we can get some traction in brick and mortar. You know, we put in a couple of levers in the social media. His product doesn't really work that well with influencer marketing. So that's not something we can pull here, but we're trying to pull a lot of other levers around him to just keep growing the business in different directions. So, I mean, you are doing exactly what your name suggests. You are elevating. <laughs> so they're not out of the picture. They are, uh, I understand. Okay, that's great. So uh, tell me about the, typically what you see about the, brands that you acquire as their operation? What does their team look like? What are some roles and responsibilities that you expect to see in their team? And um, as far as the value that having that team adds, uh, what, is that, what, what does that look like? It's different case by case. I mean, as the business starts, I mean, most businesses start off, the founder takes on almost everything. You know, they, the financial accounts, and they, the inventory planner, they, the social media manager, they, the product development guy, they do the SEO. And as they get bigger, they outsource, you know, some of the more major tasks. So this business, for example, he had about three full-time employees. So he had one person working on PPC full-time, one person working on inventory forecasting full-time. And, you know, someone else working on the Amazon listings. Mm -hmm. So uh, what do you recommend outsourcing? Never to do it in-house. Financing is typically one that people don't enjoy. But, I mean, you need to be on top of your numbers. It doesn't help your finance. The bookkeeper is only doing a report once a year. So you want to know, you know, as granular detail as possible and as often as possible. I mean, you know, some people have systems in place where they can keep track of their numbers on a daily basis. So I'd recommend outsourcing, you know, financing, accounting to 
you know, an accountant who has e-commerce experience, who can, you know, maybe give you some dashboards where they're letting you see your data in a real-time basis. I mean, if you do get an accountant who gets access to, you know, API access, they can then show you dashboards on a daily basis where your business is trending. Well, one of the things that I found was a lot of the sellers, first of all, don't pay too much attention to finances and account because it's boring. They don't understand. It's too many moving parts. <laughs> but the, at the end of the day, in my book, running an Amazon operation, there are two key actions that every seller must take that will define the level of your success or it will define your failure. Yeah. One is conversion rate per item. You need to know what that is, and not only per item, but your composite, because composite is your overall performance. If, it's, if you have listings that are not performing and you're pulling down your average conversion rate, then why are you selling them, right? It doesn't make any sense. So conversion rate is one. The other thing is your the ratio of your liquidity versus inventory value that you carry at all times, real time. What that means is how much net profit are you making per sale as a percentage and as dollar value. And then compare that to the amount of inventory you're carrying at all times. This is complete total how much you are holding at Amazon location, how much you're holding at warehouse, put it together. What is your investment in terms of cash? Because that is cash. So, so I always give the same example. Let's say for the sake of example, you made $1,000 a month, net, net, net profit. And then let's say it's 35%, which is, as you know, it's a very good percentage, net 35, right? And then let's say net 35 gave you... Um, Make it even more attractive. 100,000 net profit per month at 35%. If at any point in time you carry inventory worth half a million dollars, it will take you five months just to earn how much money uh, inventory you're holding, right? That means that uh, you have no money. You have a successful operation, healthy margins, but you never see the money because where it's in inventory. So in order to know that ratio, liquidity versus inventory ratio, there is only one solution that you must put in place an inventory management slash accounting system right from the get-go. If you have not done that yet and you realize this is important, you're gonna, it's going to take you a lot of time and money because it's very hard to put your hand, your finger on the value of the inventory Amazon has at any point because it's always moving target. You have to do it ASAP because otherwise you're not going to know. So that is the main challenge that I see from sellers and nobody pays attention. So an and outsourced party doesn't care about this either because they just want to care about um, filing taxes for you. So uh, what is your take on this? Do you agree? Exactly. And we met a seller, you know, beginning of last year. I mean, quite a small, but they're doing around $3 million revenue. And we spoke to the seller and he said to us, like, look, you don't want to buy my business, I'm not making any money. You know, I've got $3 million revenue. 
I took $100,000 cash outside out the bank last year. So, you know, you plug in a multiple, you get the business for next to nothing. We're like, look, how do you not make that much revenue? We looked at your margin. We know what the Amazon fees. We've got a good estimate of your overhead. So you should be making more. And when you look at his numbers and you do his p and on a cruel basis, I mean, it came out as making almost $600,000 EBITDA, but, you know, he just saw the $100,000 he took out because the extra 500K he put back into inventory. So he's sitting there running the business and he had no idea where his numbers were. You know, we've seen some people running their business actually making a loss, thinking they're growing because they're growing the top line, but, you know, their margins are just compressing and that they just couldn't catch it quick enough. Yeah. 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 I mean, uh, that's so true. So um, let's, uh, let me ask you my uh most favorite question, which is to kind of, uh, it's funny though, because everybody laughs. So if you uh, could have Amazon change one thing in their policies for third-party sellers, what do you think that would be? I think it's like we said earlier, data drives decisions and you having more accurate data is super important. I mean, Amazon's getting really competitive and you know, at the end of the day, if someone else knows more about how people are converting than I do, they're more likely to get the sale. So there's a lot of third-party companies that pull data off of Amazon, but they make a lot of estimates and assumptions to get that. So if Amazon was a bit more transparent with the data, you know, I think that would help us be, you know, make a lot more informed decisions. And I think if we could get the exact revenue per keyword, that would definitely be something that's helpful. Yeah, it's transparency is key. I mean, they like to be transparent, but they Amazon is one of the most secretive companies. They don't want to share it. So let's learn a little bit about you. So, um, you know, we heard you finally made Austin, Texas your home. So tell me about some of your passions, how you spend your time outside work. Uh, what do you like doing? Yeah, I've always been entrepreneurial. So you know, always just enjoy the hustle. I mean, I started you know, my first business while I was back in college in South Africa. So, you know, I was just big into fitness at the time. So I started looking into the supplements and the sports nutrition. So, you know, I went there, I wanted to start my own brand. So basically just bought the product, didn't really have a name. So I imported, you know, 200 kilograms of whey protein. And, you know, we get the stuff, you know, stacked up there, you know, staying at my home with my parents at the time, you know, just trying to save on rent. So we've got these, you know, these pallets of whey protein piled up in the garage and you know, eventually we start, you know, mixing into tubs, you know, we get a label, we start printing the brand and, you know, moving around day to day, just selling the whey protein. You know, we start expanding the product range. We sell like, you know, amino acids. We've got our pre-workout. How old were you then? I was 20. 20. So was that your first entrepreneurial experience or did you actually start even earlier? Uh, I done like small things like, you know, selling hours, working, you know, tutoring. And so it's the first sort of, brand that I've actually done. You know, I ran like a tuck shop and you know sell you know retail products just you know in front of people, but I think it's the first sort of business. So uh, I mean you know as students usually you are told to focus on studies, but then we end up doing these things. You know, every kid is different. So it sounds like you were entrepreneurial already as a kid. If you were tutoring students and things, would that be right? Yeah, I think a little bit, I've always sort of had that desire to do a bit more. I mean, just enjoyed being out there, you know, talking to people and 
you know, sort of that thrill of trying to make money. It's like, you know, like every time you get a sale, it was all physical sales. I mean, back in South Africa, people aren't really buying products online. So every sale, you know, I'd be there in front of the person, you know, you've got to try explain the benefits to them, convince them to use your product over someone else's. And I sort of enjoyed that, that adrenaline rush you so get from it. Is it actually making a sale or is it the capability to convince people that you get a thrill from? I think it's a combination. So the bigger picture, I mean, just sort of watching the business grow. It's, you know, from one month to the next, you see it's in a better place. So it's, you work on the small levels. It's like, you know, get in that one sale helps sort of add to that, you know, get in one shop that's willing to take your product. So it's the sense of building something. Is that what it is? Exactly. Is that, where does that come from? Um, I think it's just always been driven to achieve more. You know, you always... Well, that must be your family. That must be your family. That That's what you had at home. Is that right? Yeah, I definitely have to give him credit. I mean, my dad always from a young age, I mean, you know, since I was young, he always, he didn't treat me like a kid. You know, he always, you know, from 12 years old, he'd be, you know, talk about how he's looking at companies. I mean, he would always look at, you know, publicly traded companies. So he'd sit me there and walk through the financial statements. I mean, when we'd walk through the shelves, you know, 12, my dad would say, Look at this brand. Why do you think people are buying this product over that one? How are they positioning? How have they labeled the product? Look on the shelf space. So I think he always sort of treated me more as an adult before I got there. And that, that okay. definitely helped. So you grew up very quickly to take responsibility and then, you know, look after things, I guess. That's how, okay, I understand Because I, I always try and figure out, you know, where because this is a very tough business. You know, you have to deal with numbers, you have to deal with people, you have to be innovative, you know, product. So where does that come from is something I try and explore. So, uh, and it always goes back to the childhood and how, what kind of a job your parents did and what kind of an environment. So that, that's what I'm uh, always trying to figure out. Great. So um, tell us about how people can reach you and uh, what is the best way to connect? I mean, they can send me an email. It's just matt at elevatebrands.com or LinkedIn. You know, I think my tag is Matthew-Botha. Mm-hmm. And feel Great. free to reach out. So I will. Um, we will obviously put all your contact information on our website together with the episode. And uh, but uh, anybody who wants to reach out, so uh, they'll be able to do it through that, or just go straight to the website and email you, or connect with you on LinkedIn. So this was great, uh, Matt. You really provided really hands-on approach. Your getting physical is something I've never heard. So clearly, that's a winning strategy if you're growing despite all the conditions and compressed margins, and. Uh, Thank you very much for appearing. Uh, thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. It's great to chat. Thank you. And uh, that brings us to the end of another episode. And I'll see you on the next one. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode. Be sure and subscribe, rate, and review our show. And be sure and share an episode with a friend. And thank you so much for being with us today. We'll see you next week here on Amazon Legends.